You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Last week, we talked about Jesus, and he promised us a blessedness, which means true happiness. But he makes a wild claim that true happiness actually only comes from following Jesus. The happiness actually doesn't come from the earthly ways we pursue happiness and what advertisers try to convince us of happiness. But in fact, Jesus declares woe or misery to try to trust in our wealth, our health, our pleasure, our fame, our popularity. To trust in anything else won't work, but Jesus says if we trust in him, even if we're poor, hungry, unpopular, and weeping, We can have true happiness with Christ both in this life and in the life to come. So much so that if we're discriminated against on the basis of following Jesus, Jesus says you can leap and rejoice in that day because your reward is great in heaven. That's some wild stuff, but it's the intro to what is Jesus's main teaching. This is called Luke 6, the Sermon on the Plain which has a parallel in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, which is more famous. The Sermon on the Mount is a longer sermon. It's directed at a Jewish audience. Luke cuts all the content down to say, hey, and this is for you Gentiles. But he hits the same meat of the stuff. And that's why it's so important that we understand and think well about it. Because the main point of what he's teaching is that the way of this world is temporary. It says life is about us. So do whatever you think makes you happy. And Jesus says differently. Life with Jesus is upside down to the world's ways. That life is actually eternal. Life is all about Jesus. And Jesus is the only path to true lasting happiness, both in this life and beyond. And so as we engage here, we have to see it's been introduced of blessings and woes. But I actually want to skip to the end about the foundation to set up what the rest of Jesus has to say about loving our enemies and really about judging well. Look at verse 46, what he has to say about foundation. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. Jesus is not shy about requiring belief in him as Savior, and requiring obedience to him as Lord. He says, believe in me, but don't just believe in me abstractly. Believe in what I actually have to say. That's true belief in the actual Jesus as he is. He is a living human and God. Every time he speaks, he speaks as Lord of the universe. It's never good advice. It's always good news. Good news to be obeyed by the people he created. So Jesus can never be an add-on to our many thoughts and beliefs, but rather he must become the foundation of our life. And here's how a foundation works. And I'm no expert up here, all right? Zero expertise. Had to phone a friend on this. Remember Millionaire? Had to call a, call a guy or a gal here that knew what they were talking about. And so a foundation is like this. Your house lives above, the building lives above, But the foundation has to go below the topsoil, below the surface, and be a footing or sometimes pylons driven down. Sometimes if the building's big enough, you have to find the bedrock or it's going to fall over. Sometimes just getting deep in the soil is enough. 
But the reason the foundation is important is because houses and buildings are really heavy. Did you know the average American house, your house probably even is a little bit bigger. If we live in the South, the houses are a little bigger. It weighs 50 tons or 100,000 pounds. We only know this because humans do silly things like this. They move houses around. I've always wondered, you see one of those and you're like, man, that seems like quite an endeavor. Could you not rebuild it? But they've had to figure out how much per square foot does a house really weigh? And it's about 100,000 pounds. So if your foundation isn't correct, you will sink into the earth. The topsoil will shift. Wind and rain, as the Lord talks about, a stream can hit it. A flood will literally knock over your house. The leaning tower of Pisa is because they didn't go deep enough. So it just keeps leaning. Just going to keep going. There's actually a skyscraper in San Francisco right now that's leaning and in a lawsuit that they've had to put braces to make sure it doesn't fall over. And people are panicking because their floors are literally tilting in this high skyscraper. It's important stuff. Here's the largest building in America. It's one World Trade Center built after the 9-11 attacks. It has 94 floors. It's 1,700 feet. And its foundation actually goes 110 feet into the ground to get all the way to the bedrock of Manhattan and then drilled in a box of a steel cage through the bedrock to keep it from blowing over. All of this has to be secure or one day it's going to come down. And when you apply Jesus' words to your life, taking him as savior from sin, the only salvation, and taking him as the only Lord of the universe to obey, you are digging into the bedrock. Your soul, your soul is more important than the World Trade Center, and it's heavier than the World Trade Center. It just is. Because in Genesis 2-7, God said he breathed his very life into you. He didn't do that for deer. You just eat them or look at them. He didn't do that for trees. He didn't do it for frogs. He didn't do it for dogs, as cool as they are. But God breathed his life into you, which makes your soul of infinite worth and value to everyone, whether they respect that or not. And God's saying there is no foundation in this life other than Jesus, the Lord of life, that can hold your soul and build a life that's going to stand in the final judgment or just in the storms of this life. Every other foundation is faulty. And it's from that moment that we see that that's what Jesus tells us. Verse 48, he said, when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do is like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, it immediately fell. And the ruin of the house was great. And the question becomes, are we building a life on Jesus's words? Or are we building a house that will surely collapse? And the first part of following Jesus puts us right with God. Through Jesus on the cross, you can be right with God. You can be forgiven. But if you're right with God, he actually flips your life to say, this is what it looks like to live with others horizontally. And he gives two sounding impossible commands to say that we must love our enemies. It's not like a device. It's not an option. That the Christian, the follower of Jesus, must love their enemies. Not people they dislike, but enemies. And must judge only as God does. 
that we must love as God does and only judge as God does, knowing we're not God. And we live in a world that says, hate your enemies and love your friends or love those who agree with you. People who have the most in common with you, they can be loved and everyone else is out. We also live in a world that says you either judge harshly and absolutely, cut off everyone who's toxic, cut off everyone who's not like you, cut off everyone who votes differently than you, or don't judge anything ever at all and have no judgments or opinions on anything unless they're kept very private. And that don't work. If you've been a leader of anything for 30 seconds, you got to have opinions. You have to make decisions. The workplace needs solutions. We are called into courts and juries. We have to make judgments. Jesus isn't forbidding judgment, but he wants to talk about how we do it. We'll get to that after we get, get through our love. And loving enemies is so contrary to the human heart that Jesus wants to drill down a foundation with seven straight examples. He knows we will resist this and try to squiggle to hold on to a little hate, right? You ever felt a squiggle? It's like, I would love that neighbor, but man, he blows leaves every day. Too real. Every day. It don't matter if it's fall. He's out there making sure no leaf. Hours. My guy. Gotta love them. Check this out. Seven straight examples. He says, love your enemies. How? Well, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. When you get a little birdie on the interstate, you gotta bless them back. And don't bless them back with a birdie. (laughs) Give them a smile. Number three, pray for those who abuse you, those who maltreat you, those who suck in the workplace. Number four, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Look him in the eye and say, really? Really, we're going to insult me today. Number five, from the one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. It's okay to be penniless at the end of a street of people begging from you. Seven, from the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. Refuse to keep score with people. Anybody struggle with scorekeeping? If you didn't nod your head, you're also lying. Everyone struggles a little bit with scorekeeping. And he gives a summary rule in verse 31. It's the golden rule. It's what, you know, we were taught growing up, maybe, maybe not. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them also. He kind of gives us a tool. That's a good way to think about that. If you don't know what to do, if you're saying, well, maybe I can just hate this person, Flip it around, consider it from their perspective, and go, would you like to be hated? How would you like to be treated? It's such a simple diagnostic whenever we want to squirm past those seven examples to say, what if the situation was flipped? How would you like to be treated? Do that. But I want to be sensitive. It is hard to love an enemy. It is hard to love someone who's actually sinned against you, not someone you dislike, not someone who annoys you, not someone who who did something that stepped on your toes, but someone who actually sinned against you, done violence to you or a loved one, someone who's actively working against you. But Jesus is resolute that in each of these three movements, each of these seven examples, there's actually three movements that you can apply to any situation to love your enemy well. And the first one is this. Do not retaliate. All seven, there's this pause where the person just chooses not to just do likewise. That says no to eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's biblical, but it's supposed to be executed by a just government, not personal retribution. 
Number two, reorient the moment, this moment of offense towards you, Godward. Humans wanna make every offense a boxing match. Oh, he hit me, I'll hit him back. Every problem you have at work, how tempting is it to hit them back to make sure they get a negative review, to make sure you spin the gossip cycle back? But what God is calling you to do is to say, this isn't a boxing match, but every single interaction you have is actually a triangle with me. I don't want you to punch them back, but I want you to consider that I'm the God of both parties, whether they follow me or not. And that ultimately you're accountable to this God not to win the boxing match. So I don't have to fight back. I can consider my next step in light of who God is. And that's a third principle. Live as though God is God. We respond, trusting God is who he says he is. Which means we love people and push past niceness. Niceness is expected in our culture. That's what he talks about. Hey, even, even bad people love people who do good things for them. Even friends love friends. Even pagans do these things. Niceness is something even pagans and sinners and people who, who don't believe and don't believe in anything will do. But we're actually called to something else in love. Not ordinary love, but an extraordinary kind of love. And I want to hit a moment of clarity here. Jesus' words here don't mean you should tolerate an abusive relationship. This is not saying that you should allow yourself to be uh, slapped or, or disrespected in, in that way in a continually way. It's not calling yourself to, harm, to get your stay in harm's way. You can remove yourself from danger, and that is a godly thing to do. But then how you retaliate, we can choose to do a different way. It's not calling us to self-harm, but it is calling ourselves to think Godward and what do we do next in any of these situations where someone has become an enemy. Why do we do this? Verse 35, but love your enemies, do good, lend, you know, give, give your physical items away, expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You will be sons of the most high for he is kind and ungrateful to the evil. The example is not some other good person. It's God himself that lets the sun come up on people who are bad, that lets life go through the lungs of people who hate him. Verse 36, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And here's where we realize the golden rule is a tool, but it's actually not the rule. The standard's actually higher than what I think is fair. The standard is actually be merciful like our good father is to us. And we see the gospel right here, that the reason to love our enemies, just in those two verses, we can tease out at least eight good, oh, how many fingers do I have? Eight good gospel reasons to do good to your enemies. And I just want to do this. This is like an exercise in reading the Bible well. These are eight different reasons you can just see of why should we love our enemies? Because the golden rule creates justice. It at least starts a measure of fairness in an unfair world to say, do as you wish to do. Because there's great reward in heaven, a direct promise of these verses. Maltreated in this life, you will be rewarded in the next life. Reason three, because God's way is the best way. To think we have some better way is arrogance on our behalf. 
because this is God's explicit will for our life. That's a heavy thing to think about. We like to think of God's will as like a big mystery and we get to like pick something. God's really specific. If people do evil to you, you do good to them. That's the way. Because this is God's way of making us more like Jesus by actually living like Jesus. We tend to think, oh, like Jesus, he's going to give bread to thousands. He does that too. But he's also like hated in almost the end of every speech. He's like driven out of town and people doubting him, people being mean to him. Eventually he goes through a crucifixion. We can't cross, we can't follow a crucified God and not expect life also to be hard for us. Because God reveals himself to the world as merciful. And he doubles down through us that God witnesses additionally through the world by turning what would be unmerciful people into his merciful family members. The Matthew version of this says, be kind to those who hate you. And it's like putting coals on their head. When you stare back at someone who insults you, slaps you, they did a lot of slapping back then. There's a whole thing in Roman culture. They're slapping each other on the Senate floor, just... It's a whole deal, a lot of backhand slap. It was just a way to say, and you don't belong here. Jesus says, stare him back in the face like, you're really going to slap me? It's not a moment of weakness. Say, like, Is this what we're doing? And witness that this is how merciful God is. The God who's been slapped sends his son to us. And last, because our obedience pleases God. Sometimes when we're teaching about the Bible, we forget like, God does enjoy, God does get glory, God does give blessing through our obedience. You can please God by loving your enemies. And all of this would just be way too much. It would all be too much. Jesus' teachings would be too extreme if Jesus didn't live them that Jesus is the one who's done good to us, even as mankind hates God. Jesus is the one who came to bless those who cursed him. And on the cross, you see Jesus blessing and praying for his abusers, even to the very end. Jesus is the one struck on a cheek and refuses to call an angel army to defend himself. Jesus is the one who's stripped of cloak and tunic and all of his clothes to die for us. Jesus gives salvation to anyone who calls on his names. We're the beggars. We give the people who beg because we're the beggars. In the last account of things, we're all beggars telling each other where the bread of life is. Jesus gave us all the world. Yet here he is not demanding it back. To follow the crucified Jesus, we must crucify our lust for vengeance in this life. Man, isn't revenge tempting? The most powerful example of this is the civil rights movement in America. The most powerful modern movement to show this, led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, This month is actually the anniversary of 60 years since he wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail, a jail that still stands downtown. It's not like some piece of ancient history, but you can still see the jail where he wrote this letter talking about defending his actions of leading a protest that led to his arrest from people who were criticizing him. 
And the people criticizing were actually uh, members of the clergy, both Christian and Jewish, saying, hey, man, you know, you're causing a lot of trouble. Let the courts handle it. And eventually, Dr. Martin Luther King says, well, the courts have been able to handle it for a long time, and we didn't get anywhere. So now we're going to do a protest, and we're doing a peaceful protest. We're following the way of Jesus. Because don't let the civil rights history be scrubbed or washed over for us. It was a distinctly Christian movement. He's the most famous pastor ever in America. They sung gospel hymns as they protested. The reason for the courage is that they trusted the God of the Bible. And through that peaceful movement, living this very passage, it flipped the course of America. It didn't cure racism in America. It didn't fix everything, but it changed hearts. You know how? The historians tell us that flipped because at the same time this was happening, the TV was in every household. And for the first time, people saw water cannons hitting children and dogs and police officers in a live moment. And the American conscience shifted to go, oh, this can't be us. You know, whatever we got to do, we, we, and the politics shifted, everything shifted on the peaceful protest on a Christian movement that loved their enemies. And that's the power of a gospel witness, that we actually don't have to demand our way and fight for everything in this world, but we can be uncompromising in our truth and peaceful in our ways. Martin Luther King wasn't looking for a compromise. He was looking for truth and love and the end of hate. And we took at least one step forward that day in something that we continue to work on in our nation today. It's important that we love well, because if we are going to seek the good of Birmingham consistently, it will come through loving our enemies, full of grace, full of prophetic truth. It's both. If it's not both, it ain't Jesus. And that's the foundation we lay for everything else you do in your life, because your love reveals who you live for. If you can't get to loving your enemy, it reveals you live for yourself. But when you love your enemy, it speaks that there's actually a triangle here and a true God above us who both loves both parties and wants truth and grace to proceed. Amen? Jesus is telling our enemy, love our enemies is tough, but it may be even harder to learn to judge well. Verse 37 says this, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And you might say, hey, hey, we're not supposed to judge anyone. It says judge not. Well, the tough part of that is it gets to the end of the passage and talks about judging trees by their fruit. So what Jesus seems to be alluding to here is let's not make quick condemning judgments, but rather be a forgiving, giving, generous people that lives without going around condemning everything, but instead considering the generosity of God in any situation before we wade into judgment. It's telling us that we can take a break on being the police of all things. It's exhaust. If you're kind of a cop person of all things, it's exhausting eventually and gets a big self inflated pride bubble eventually. 
He's saying the bubble, you can't make a right judgment if you're not generous first. If you're not willing to do the golden rule and understand it from the other side, you can't even make any right judgment before God. And we live like that. We actually live just like God. God's character. If you wonder like, man, who is this God? You're reading the Old Testament, maybe in your year-long Bible, and there's like, there's a lot going on. You're in Leviticus, you're in Numbers. There's just a lot going on. Look at this, Exodus 34. This is the most quoted verse in the whole Bible. It's quoted 27 different times. This is exactly who God is, Old and New Testaments. It says this, and he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is what God wants from you in your judgments. Someone who's abounding in love and faithfulness. If you're quick to judge, you're quick to anger. If you're quick to condemn, it's not gonna work. But if you wanna step into who God's character is, be merciful as God is, it's gonna look like Exodus 34. And the description here of this good measure, shaking, weighing out, all this thing, it doesn't really work in our culture, but it sure worked in theirs. Because when you bought grain in the market, you brought a jar, and if someone was good and generous to you, they shook the grain out to get it to settle to the bottom. Flipped it over, flipped it back, shook it, and kept adding grain and kept adding grain. And that's how God wants you to walk into a judgment situation. That you're ready to hand a bucket full of grain that people are getting every ounce they paid for. You're not doing it fast. You're not doing it ill-generously. You are doing it with a heart that says, I want to give an abundance of the best favor in this situation like God does to us. And if you do that, God makes a promise. You'll get it back from you. You'll get it back from others. Second principle is this, it's humility. Verse 39, he says, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall in a pit? That'd be tough. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. We must humbly learn right and wrong from Jesus. It's one of those parables that's real direct. It just says, hey guys, you guys are actually all blind. We're all blind without Jesus. He said, your sense of right and wrong is just off, that you are also sinful. So unless you first come and learn right and wrong from me, you're just gonna end up in a pit. Every time you judge, you're going to be incorrect, either in heart or in judgment. So he says, you need to be generous, but second, you need to be humble. And the third principle is this, you need to have integrity. And this is the one that will keep you out of trouble of judgment every time. This is the one that you got to lock in if you're going to make big calls in life or even little calls. Verse 41, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out, out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. And that word in Greek, hypocrite, that's what they use for actors. You who wears two faces, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. When you need to make a judgment call, I gotta go left, I gotta go right. I gotta say this is wrong, I gotta say it's right. I gotta hire this person, I gotta fire this person, I have to make this decision, I gotta do this. All these real life things, do you come to it generous? Do you come to it humble, looking at Jesus's way? And you come to it full of integrity, examining yourself well. 
And the word I here is also a play on words that they often called their heart their eye too. So it works both ways. Have I really thought through, do I bring bias to this? Am I being a hypocrite that I, I actually don't do these things, but boy, I judge harshly. Have you ever noticed people who are really harsh judges often don't even do the thing that they're judging harshly? It's a big trend. Jesus knows it. That often in their own guilt and shame over not doing enough in their mind, they're intense on want to hit other people with judgment. The triangle remains the same. When you judge, am I generous like the triangle, the generous God? Am I humble seeing where I am in the triangle? That in the end, my best judgment still might not be right? And do I have integrity that I'm walking before God in this matter before I want to weigh any judgment with someone else? And if those three are clear, if you're generous, humble, and full of integrity, you can kindly help a friend see how they're missing God in their vision and maybe missing you in some equation. But verse 43 tells us this. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, grapes are not gathered from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you do make a judgment, you can just remember to see for what it is. If bad things are said and bad things are done, then this is a bad situation. If good things are coming and good things are said, this is a good situation. And keep it that simple. I once was in a meeting, it was, it was a pastoral meeting, and, and a guy in the meeting just said something just kind of rude and harsh to me in the meeting. And it was like kind of awkward and just kind of moved past it. And, you know, it's like a bigger meeting. Let's keep it moving. And to his incredible credit, he asked for me to come to his office later. We sat down and he goes, hey, I want to apologize. I was off base. I was angry. And then he stopped himself. He goes, Actually, um, I don't want to blame it on being hangry or angry or tired. Um, the Lord says bad things come from a bad things out of my mouth come from a bad heart. So I actually need to work through probably more things in my heart of why I would treat you like that. But will you forgive me for now of what I said? And man, it blew me away. Instead of being mad at him, I was like, man, can we do like five hugs? You know, like how many? <laughs> when would this get uncomfortable? How many hugs I want to give you and how close I feel to you? And that's Jesus's vision for you, that you would judge yourself first, not harshly, but fairly. And only then with the log out of your eye would you venture to give a judgment on someone else. Church, be careful in your leadership, at home, at work, in the neighborhood. Are you generous? Are we humble? Are we full of integrity before we speak? I want us to apply this in three ways. How deep is your foundation? If you got real honest about your understanding of Jesus and his teachings, is the foundation sufficiently deep enough for what God is building in your life? Or as responsibilities have stacked up, maybe at work, maybe with owning this or that, maybe with new relationships, does suddenly the foundation start to feel a little sinky? Because your understanding of Jesus may be stopped in high school or college, or maybe you're new to citizens, new, new to church. I mean, not to beat you up, to say, well, then let's dig deeper. 
It says the wise man listens to Jesus' words and just digs out, digs out the foundation. You can have a house and keep redoing the foundation. They did it at our house, man. We were like sinking into the, sinking into the roebuck. You know, I was hoping a spring wasn't running beneath it, you know? We had to dig it out. It's not too late to start a relationship with Jesus and build a real foundation. Or if you start to find your life and houses sagging, it's time to dig out a deeper one. And this is an incredible place to do that in membership and community groups, coming just Sunday learning, studying the scripture, worshiping our God. It's a wonderful way to take that next step. If your life is on Jesus's shoulders, you're always safe. The mark of joy is when I know Christians are probably in a good place, like a kid on dad's shoulders. When the joy is missing for long periods, it probably means something's not going so hot down here regardless of circumstance. Do you have a lot of joy? Are you firmly rested on Jesus's shoulders? Second one is this. I want you to ask yourself to evaluate how your love and judgments are going, specifically in your relationships inside the church. Are you full of thankfulness and encouragement for everyone around you? Or do you find yourself harboring little judgments or having some competition? keeping a little scorecard of slights. Because Galatians 6 speaks of the principle of how we live the Christian life actually starts in Galatians 6 at ground zero is actually the church. Sometimes we run all the way to the outside. But Galatians 6 says, if it's not real here, then we don't have a ton to say to an actual enemy. Everybody at church is on the same team, especially if you're a committed follower of Jesus. If the team's fighting, then we don't have a whole lot to say to anybody else. It actually reveals something's very wrong if we're very kind to someone far from Christ, but mean to a sister or a brother. How generous, how humble, how full of integrity could you be? Corinthians says we should judge inside the church to help each other towards holiness in a kind and gentle way. But how generous are you? It starts at home, the home of God. Rather than just withholding judgment, are you wildly encouraging, thankful, gracious, and compassionate, like Exodus 34 says, abundant in faithfulness and love? No one's ever going to say, you are too loving, too faithful, too slow to anger. The upside-down life of following Jesus is not easy. But really, what other way is there to live that's going to bring much satisfaction? For me, I had a friend that was murdered as a part of gun violence and armed robbery that went wrong uh, maybe five years ago now. And after the initial shock, six months passed, I could just feel a roiling rage through my body that someone would take my friend's life over a wallet. It was that simple. It was a couple young men with a gun, made a terrible decision, and my friend was dead. And over time, at first I was like, oh, I forgive them. And then as I saw their pictures in the paper and things went on and court cases delayed and justice deferred, I could just feel the hate starting to seethe in my body. 
And the problem with holding a grudge, it's like um, drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. There was such freedom just to let it go and say, yeah, there's a court system. That's the justice side of this. But bigger than that, there's a God above. And I found as I forgave the young men, suddenly I wanted more than just to be at peace with them. I wanted them to know the same hope my now dead friend had and I had. That they wouldn't be in a place where armed robbery was an option but would find the great hope in a Jesus who loves enemies and forgives.